Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. It is February 11th, and welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for our events and special podcast series. Today, we are continuing the conversation about the ramifications of the riots on January 6th and its implications for America's foreign policy and national security. Today, we have a group of NSI's advisory board members to discuss, including Dmitry Alperovich, co-founder and chairman of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, Stuart Baker, the first assistant secretary for policy at the Department of Homeland Security, Carmen Medina, former deputy director for intelligence at the Central Intelligence Agency, and me, Lester Munson, host of NSI's Fault Lines podcast and former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So we're here to talk about the insurrection, the riot, the mob action at the Capitol on January 6th, over a month ago, particularly what its implications are for foreign policy and American national security. So as a somewhat skeptical Washington person, I have to confess that when I heard Joe Biden during the campaign and during most of the transition say one of his priorities was restoring American leadership, I treated that with a grain of salt. I thought it was kind of a throwaway line, a way for him to say he's with the establishment and Donald Trump is this um, inappropriate, rude, terrible person. And it didn't really mean anything in terms of policy. But I will say after January 6th, when we saw uh, the terrible things that happened at the Capitol, I now think that's that's a real challenge for President Biden that he actually does have to take concrete steps in the policy arena and and rhetorically to restore American leadership in the world. So I want to throw this question open to the panel. Stuart, I defer to your OG podcaster status here, and I will ask you to go first, sir. All right. I, I do think it's a it's something of a challenge, and I think it's a challenge that uh, uh, President Biden and his supporters on the Hill are probably making worse by making more of January 6th than they should. It was a terrible thing. People should be prosecuted. Uh, the violence that happened is uh, unacceptable. Um, but to suggest that it put our democracy at risk or that it was an insurrection or a, a coup in the making, those things are just not true. And um, suggesting that raises questions about the stability of the United States that uh, um, will make his job harder. Uh, and so I would say uh, he is going to have to show that uh, American leadership can be just as boring as it used to be. Uh, and people would like to believe that. I wish his description of what happened in January was a little less inflammatory because it will undercut um, the willingness of our allies to see us as a stable and boring leader uh, in the way that they used to uh, view us. Uh, My suggestion would be they should take down all those stupid fences tomorrow and say, you know, we're, we're a democracy and we're a tougher democracy than most people thought. And we don't need these fences. Carmen, do you agree? Um, I disagree and I agree. So I agree that we should take down the fences tomorrow. And I 
agree that our democracy is still vibrant. So in that way, it was not an existential experience. But I will say that particularly watching some of the new video about the close calls in the Capitol, I have a question. What was the plan if any of those individuals had actually gotten their hands on any of the people they were going after, Pence, uh, Nancy Pelosi, or Mitt Romney, or any of those people? What was their plan? I'm persuaded by the argument that if not for accidents of fate and the Greek gods, we could have had a really legitimate threat or undermining of American democracy. And I'm not comfortable with escaping something that narrowly. They did have a mock-up of the gal- of a gallows outside the Capitol. Uh, I'm not sure whether it could actually be used or not. And I didn't see a guillotine, but I suppose that wouldn't have surprised me either. Dimitri, what's your take? Yeah, I think I disagree with Stuart. I, I think this was an insurrection. It was an incompetent insurrection. It had virtually no chance of succeeding, but it doesn't make it an attempted insurrection. And I think Carmen is right. If uh, they had succeeded, God forbid, in harming vice president or other members of Congress and uh, prevented a successful um, uh counting of the electoral votes, then we could have had um, a constitutional crisis uh, and it wouldn't have been clear who would have been president. I guess Nancy Pelosi would have been acting on, on the 21st, uh, but uh, it could have been a serious issue. Now, I think I think it was highly, highly unlikely. Um, and uh, clearly there was very little plan on, on behalf of this mob. Um, and, and they certainly probably wouldn't have wanted Nancy Pelosi to become president on January 21st. But nevertheless, I do think that the, it was an attempt to uh, um, interfere with the democratic process and, and to, to stop it. Um, again, incompetent, but uh, nevertheless an attempt. Now, but coming back to your question, Lester, on um, the impact to U.S. policy, I actually think January 6th notwithstanding that we need to get away from a moralistic foreign policy approach. Um, it's always been hypocritical, and, and our allies and, and adversaries alike have pointed out that, you know, while we're promoting democracy, we're perfectly happy to support Saudi Arabia, we're, we're perfectly happy to talk to China and many other uh, countries, and, and, and we should, because at the end of the day, our diplomacy and the objective of the American foreign policy is about our own interests, first and foremost, before anything else. And we will be hypocritical, and we will support people that we dislike, uh, because we need them, uh, quite frankly, and, and we need allies, um, and, and we need to accomplish things in the world. So I do think that the moralistic argument has never been taken seriously in my experience overseas, um, even even amongst our allies. Um, and it's always been sort of the, the approach of, yeah, those Americans that like to preach to others, but but really they're all about their own self-interest. And we have been. Um, and I think it's time to jettison that and, and go back to the Nixonian hard power foreign policy of we're going to pursue our own interests. And uh, sometimes those interests will entail supporting democracy. Sometimes they won't. And we should be okay with that. Dimitri, do you think the Biden administration will do exactly what you just said in the wake of January 6th, that they'll use this as an opportunity to let go of some things that didn't work and focus on a much more realism based, a much more realistic foreign policy? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, I mean, the reality is that both parties, uh, have become so enamored with with this uh, approach that we, we we know best and and everyone should listen to us, which I think is actually counterproductive. It offends people, it offends allies. It certainly doesn't uh, make us any friends amongst our adversaries. 
Um, um, but um, I don't see either Democrats or Republicans moving away from that approach anytime soon. Carmen? Well, the phrase American exceptionalism comes to mind. And when I was in government, I was always felt very unhappy and unsettled with the phrase American exceptionalism, which is like a has been a cornerstone of American national security policy. You know, we're exceptional and the world is full of enemies. Without those two things, national security as practiced in, in America kind of falls apart. And I, I, I think that, thank goodness, the days of American exceptionalism may finally be over. To add to that, I mean, just imagine if you're living in France or Spain or UK or any one of these countries that are France frankly, allies of ours, how would you feel to be told that your system sucks and American uh, system is the best? Uh, it, it's quite offensive, quite frankly, right? So, um, you know, American system is great. I love it. Uh, I'm a citizen of this country, a proud citizen, but it, it may not be for everyone. And we should accept that other countries uh, will, will take their own path. And, and I don't think that we should be telling the world that we're the best and, and pounding our chest. Um, it's fine if, if we believe we're the best our system is the best for us, but it doesn't have to be the best for everyone else. Are we still allowed to chant USA, USA when we win an Olympic event? Sure, absolutely. We should be proud of our country's accomplishments, but we shouldn't be um, pro, uh, you know, uh, engaging in propaganda to push that system onto others that don't want it. It was Simone Bolivar who actually adopted the U.S. Constitution uh, in Colombia. Uh, and after about eight months of living under it, scrapped it. He said, only the Americans could make this stupid system work. And, and even that's questionable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's we've been tiltering on the edge of chaos for 240 years now. Carmen? I was just going to say that it's not just the events of January 6th that are undermining this claim to American exceptionalism. It is, of course, the uh, response and our experience with the pandemic, which also really makes other countries wonder how high our pedestal really is. So it does seem to me that American exceptionalism, I, I don't see it as the jingoistic uh, uh, invitation to danger that uh, Carmen made. Uh, it was based in substantial part on having two really big oceans so that we had no real enemies to worry about for a couple of hundred years. And having at least uh, uh, from the 30s on a very clear establishment that controlled the national narrative in a way that the establishment doesn't anymore. Uh, and so you could unify the country around doing certain things, including COVID response, uh, uh, in a way that can't be done right now. Uh, and that made, that made us exceptional compared to places where there were competing narratives. Now we've got competing narratives. So let's talk about the place where the kind of the values-based approach to foreign policy lives, at least in my opinion, which is Congress, right? It's both Republicans and Democrats constantly legislating on human rights issues, on, on democracy promotion, that kind of thing. I, I would uh, postulate that American foreign policy works best when the executive and the legislative are in accord, as we were largely during the Cold War. It wasn't perfect, of course, but we, you know, there was a meeting of the minds, Truman and Vandenberg uh, back in the late 1940s, uh, really got some things done in a bipartisan fashion. How do we get back to that if we're going to let go a little bit of American exceptionalism and, and try to have a more realistic approach? How do, you, how do you bring Congress into that? I think it's deeper than Congress, to tell the truth. I, I think what we've seen 
as as the parties have become more tribal and you know your people are bad and my people are good no matter what they uh, uh they've done uh we've seen that played out in foreign affairs so that you can now walk around the globe look at the map of the globe point to a country and tell people pretty accurately for about half of them that's a democratic country or that's a Republican country. Not that they're Republican or Democratic, but that the Democrats like this country and they don't like that. Uh, they don't like Hungary. They don't like Poland. They don't like most of Eastern Europe. And they uh, uh, do like uh, the EU and they don't much like the UK. You can walk through a whole bunch of them and say, you know, our, the politics of our party mean that that's a disfavored country when we're in charge and it's a favored country when the other side is in charge. I, I, I'm afraid we're going to see more of this, not less. Dimitri Carmen. I think Stuart is right. I mean, at the core of it and what makes us weak on the global stage right now is we're divided. Um, and insurrection um, aside, um, those divisions are what makes us weak and, and not being able to speak with one voice um, overseas. And, and also for our allies, um, they can't count on us, right? Our foreign policy change, may change radically every four years. Um, and and uh, how, how can you rely on an ally and make long-term sort of decisions uh, if that's going to be the case. It also makes it perfectly rational for every one of those countries to want to interfere in our elections. I, I think that's a, a very good point, Dimitri. There's never been such a wide swing of foreign policy direction as we saw, as we are going to see Obama, Trump, and now Biden, although every once in a while I want to call him O-Biden. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I want to make just a circle back on the point about the congressional and executive agreement on foreign policy. I think agreement was a lot easier in the Cold War era because when you're so big and you're so strong and you're so dominant in the world, there isn't a lot of debate about what you need to do. At the end of the uh, World War II, the U.S. economy accounted for 50% of the world economy because every other part of the world had been destroyed by war, really. It was just uh, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and North America that escaped that. And we think about the period after that as sort of the classic national security period, but I think it needs to be seen as the aberration that it was. And, and hankering to return to that period where there's this bipartisan foreign policy is, I think, uh, mis you know, a mistake. We're more like France and Britain now trying to figure out how to chart a course in the world that is no longer under our control. At least that's my perspective. Although, Carmen, it looks like we're entering a second Cold War, and this one is now with China. And uh, remarkably, if there's one thing that there's agreement on in this town in D.C., uh, is uh, it's the agreement between Democrats and Republicans that China poses. Uh, a, a severe threat to this country, um, and we need to confront it. So um, do, uh, I wonder if you think that that will be a unifying theme for us going forward. Politically, I think the the national security people and the people who think about that, I, I think, agree on that. I don't think there's necessarily agreement between our business community and the national security establishment on the issue of China, for example. And... Um, China itself is just a fascinating place with just little hints, I think, in the last couple of years of 
not so strong a politically stable situation, just just judging, you know, from the actions that the Chinese government is taking. Uh, it, it's it's very difficult to to navigate U.S. policy right now because I don't see how we can deny the most dominant economy in the world, which will be the case in the 30s, its proper place and influence. And yet it's very difficult to imagine how we create a collaborative, relatively peaceful relationship with that country. So I, you know, when I would recruit on college campuses for the CIA at the end of the last century, I would tell them that dealing with the China emergence will be the dominant responsibility of the kids that were going to school right then and there. Carmen, if you were uh, if you were running the show in, in Beijing or Moscow, how would you exploit the current divisions in our society, whether it's with the militia groups that attack the capital or this partisan divide on on foreign policy, how would you exploit that that kind of those I don't want to call them weaknesses necessarily, but those opportunities in our open society? Well, I would say that certainly in the case of Russia, they've been the masters of disinformation, mysterious conspiracies, uh, surreal kind of thinking for generations. This has been a characteristic of the Soviet Union and now Russia for a very long time. And so they've, you know, I think that was one of the I would say it's probably the most significant intelligence failure that I feel I'm part of when my career ended in 2010 and at the CIA. I never thought that uh, the internet would be weaponized against uh, the United States. And I never really understood the power of narrative as is now created on in the cyber world and manipulated to galvanize people to do things that they would otherwise not do. And so I, I think Russia just has to keep doing um, what it's doing. I, You know, it's a mystery to me exactly what Russia gets out of this other than just weakening us. You know, you know, it, th- it doesn't seem to be a real payoff for them. In contrast to China, whose efforts seem to be much more targeted around things that will gain them economic and technological advantage, right? Um, and I, I, you know, I think where China, what where China is, is they are now able to pitch people around the idea that we're the future and your country is not. And uh, I think uh, some people might be attracted to that to that pitch. You know, if I, if I can just go back to the Russia point, uh, I actually think that. Both countries, the U.S. and Russia, have been engaged over the last 15 years, certainly, if not longer, in, in a kind of sophomoric fight where um, it, uh, we're punching each other because it feels good, not because we have a strategy to actually accomplish anything. They do this to us. We respond to them. Um, and uh, neither has an actual strategy of how to um, deal with, with each country and what we're trying to accomplish. For us, it's in part because we fundamentally don't actually care that much about Russia. Uh, we tend to believe, um, I think rightly, that that it's a diminishing power. And in 50 years um, or so, it won't actually matter that, that much. Um, their nukes will. But um, aside from that, um, their ability to project power will be um, uh, greatly diminished uh, from where it is now. Um, for, for Russia, you know, it's, it's a unifying thing, uh, certainly within their security apparatus. Um, you know, if, if they don't have an enemy in us, they don't know quite know what to do with themselves. 
Um, so they, they love punching us, uh, but uh, it, it's actually not getting anyone anything. And, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, the reset in the Obama administration did not work and probably was doomed to failure anyway. But um, at some point, we do need to figure out how we come to some terms uh, with Russia where um, we can lower the ten tension. We'll never be best friends. I, I don't believe in the reverse Kissinger that we can ever get China to ally with us against um, Russia to ally with us against China. It's just not in their geopolitical interest to ever do so. Um, but I think we can come to some sort of agreement on a few areas that they're really not strategic to us. Um, they're very important to them and, and get um, um, some some commitments um, that are enforceable on things like non-interference in our elections and other things that we care about. Stuart, let's uh, let's talk about our allies. Uh, Canada recently declared the Proud Boys a terrorist organization. That seems shocking on a number of levels. How, how are our best friends in the world reacting to what happened last month? So I think it, it, is, it is unfortunate that our allies believe what our mass media says more than we do. Uh, it, it, they, their view of the United States, unlike ours, which often is um, – infused with a lot of skepticism about media narratives. Theirs is not. Uh, the media narrative fits more closely with their worldview, uh, uh, and it's all they see uh, of the United States. So I think they probably do believe there was genuine terrorist activity uh, um, uh, that uh, uh, the Proud Boys were part of. Although when you, you know, I think of them as a street fighting gang more than anything else. Uh, and, you know, you have to work pretty hard to, to turn that into terrorism. Um, and for Canada to do this, it's a little like, I uh, remember when Michael Savage was barred uh, from the UK, he still is as if not a terrorist, then a, a hate speaker who isn't welcome there. I think they think they're doing the government of the United States a favor by siding with it in this way. Uh, but my guess is that, uh, uh, this will cause real um, problems for the Proud Boys and a lot of people who support them because uh, you know, it was founded by a Canadian. Maybe this is original sin that's bothering them. It was founded by a Canadian. Uh, I, uh, but the process by which they were designated was deeply political. Uh, the evidence has never been produced. It's going to undercut the assumption that when our allies do things about terrorism, they're doing something that makes sense and that we should support. Uh, uh, so I think in the long run, it's counterproductive for the war on terror and counterproductive for good relations with Canada in the long run. How much is the the coming focus on our own domestic law enforcement challenges with the Proud Boys and other groups, and perhaps even some on the left, going to impact our ability to address inter real international concerns like terrorism, uh, like counterintelligence activities, uh, like the the war on drugs, corruption, money laundering, that kind of thing? Are we are we letting ourselves be distracted, or is this a real national security concern? The FBI is putting enormous resources into pursuing everybody that uh, set foot in the Capitol uh, on January six. Maybe that's excessive. Certainly, some of the charges are questionable, uh, but they've got a lot of bandwidth, uh, and they can still engage with our our partners i don't think our uh, we have a lot of partners who will have a lot of sympathy with the right here uh 
Maybe in Eastern Europe, you'll have folks who wonder when the FBI comes to them and says, we want your help on some counterterrorism issue, whether it's a politically motivated request. But I, I think they're separable enough that we're going to continue to have good relations with most of the people we have currently good uh, counterterrorism relations with. Yeah, I, I don't I don't see impacting our counterterrorism operations at all, because frankly, those operations are based on mutual interests. Our allies are just as interested in fighting extremists and and, um, and prosecuting them as we are. So um, I, I don't think whatever happens on this issue is going to impact that. I think that, um, you know, we do have to look into this and we do have to understand it. And some of our allies, the UK, France, Spain, uh, to some extent, Germany, have had real recent experience on dealing with uh, violent groups that are prepared to use violence to advance their aims, you know, the IRA, the ETA, et cetera, et cetera. So I would think that we would have something to learn from them. Um, I think, you know, one thing that I've become aware of because I'm very active on social media is there's half a dozen people that I've been following on social media for years, like for a decade, people that seem completely normal to me, all of whom became QAnon supporters. And that was often, you know, I was sad when they were all banned from Twitter because now I don't really know how to follow this stream of thinking anymore. And so I think we have to, I think when we think about how we're going to tackle this issue of groups just turning their back on peaceful democracy to settle different differences, because that's what it's about, right? We It's about settling differences. Um, we have to really think about how is it that people that are extremely well-educated, um, extremely well-read, have had top secret security clearances recently in our governments, have subscribed to these strange theories. Are we the ones that are mistaken? I mean, I actually asked myself that, you know, am I, is Michael Flynn right? And am I wrong? Dimitri, what's, what's, what's your assessment of QAnon? Is this, is this a national security threat? Is it possible there are outs, you know, non-American actors who have uh, kind of dropped this virus in our society? I think that this is no different than the types of issues we, and frankly, the rest of the world has dealt with for many, many decades to come. I mean, how many Americans believe the conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination? How many Americans are anti-vaxxers, right, and believe um, that 5G causes COVID and all this other sort of nonsense? And frankly, not just in America, but the rest of the world, those types of theories are spreading uh, widely as well. Um, the biggest constituency apparently of QAnon supporters outside of America is in Japan. Japan. <laughs> the law-abiding Japanese are, are big believers in QAnon. So I don't think it's a uniquely American issue. Um, I think um, those types of conspiracy theories get exacerbated um, during times of economic hardship and uncertainty all over the world, right? And, and really since 2008, when um, there's been a shattering of belief in the elites and their ability to manage the economy and and the egregious practices we saw from our financial sector um, during those times, uh, we, we've had this rise of populism uh, spreading not just in this country, but all over the world, I think, as a direct response to people's uh, uh, beliefs that the elites have failed them, that um, um, they don't actually know what they're talking about or that they're 
uh, only interested in self-serving actions and uh, not looking for the little guy. And um, that's why you, you have seen a rise of, of these movements and, and the spreading of these conspiracy theories. Again, if you look back into in history, you saw it in the 1930s. We, we've seen it um, over the course of uh, many times, both in, in American history and, and globally. So it's not, um, it's not a unique phenomenon. And I think pointing the figure, finger at foreign countries as a cause of it, I think, is, is quite misguided. Are the Russians helping to pump it up? I'm sure they are. But is that really the cause of it? No, I, I don't think that uh, even the folks in the GRU are crazy enough to actually come up with these series themselves. Um, uh, but they're, they're certainly happy to amplify them. But uh, no, the root cause is is, um, is internal and we need to look into our own society and figure out how we uh, get people's, um, uh, improve people's lives. I mean, you look at the demographics of the of the insurrectionists that stormed the capital, they all came from uh, you know backgrounds that, uh, that have been economically challenged, and, and I'm sure that had a, uh, played a role in their radicalization. And uh, we we need to um, work on addressing that. Stuart, what what other um, downsides for American? foreign policy going forward might we experience from what happened at the Capitol? And I'm wondering if the Biden administration might find it more difficult to kind of continue the good work in some cases that the Trump administration did, perhaps on the Abraham Accords, perhaps on a tougher line with China. Is there going to be any fallout in these other areas because of what happened on January 6th? I don't think, I don't see the Abraham Accords being a problem for this administration if they choose to, uh, 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 reinforce them, uh, as I suspect they will. Um, I think with China, the the challenge is you cannot unsee the violence that was um, so aggressively covered by the uh, the media on January six, or frankly the picture of uh, police cars being burned in the streets uh, in the summer. Uh, I remember quite well when. Uh, uh, cars were being burned every night in Paris. Uh, and it changes your view of uh, how much the French know about uh, um, uh, governing. Uh, and I predict that as President Biden starts to follow more and more closely what uh, the Trump administration did on China, that China will be replaying those scenes for years. And they will they will basically say to other countries, uh, we are the country that believes in order. And you want to know what the United States believes in? Let me show you five minutes of video. Uh, and many, many countries, especially countries that have authority, authoritarian or authoritarian leaning um, governments are going to say, well, thanks very much. I will take order, uh, especially if you can give me the online tools to make sure that nobody can say anything that I disagree with. But Stuart, I would say that they, they've had so many excuses like that over many decades, right? You know, they used Iraq as an example. Do I really want a democracy like that? Post the 2003 invasion. They used the 2000 uh, hanging chad situation. Do we really want that? Uh, you know, there, uh, 2008 crisis and so forth. There, there's so many examples they can point to at what we've done wrong and, and, and tell their people that, uh, look, you know, uh, they're, they're not perfect. They're not that exceptional. We shouldn't emulate that, which is why, again, I come back to this, like we need to drop this moralistic approach in our foreign policy. It just doesn't work. It's ineffective. 
um, and uh, we need to focus on what our core interests are. Okay, so I, I think at the margin it makes a difference, but I agree with you. Uh, my my worry is that uh, when governments say what's in it for me to pick the United States versus China, there's more in it for them now than there was a year and a half ago. Carmen, I think one thing we have to think about in terms of this U.S. China competition is who are we competing for? I mean, really, what, what's the arena of this competition? It, it isn't really for Europe. I mean, it's it's really where the population will be growing in this century, which is going to be precious few places, the subcontinent and sub-Saharan Africa. And that's where the, you know, and, and exactly what is, what's that competition about? Well, I guess in both places, it's about labor and mark, cheap labor and markets. And, um, you know, I would argue that the Chinese appear to have a natural geographic advantage in South Asia and that the U.S. could have a real advantage in sub-Saharan Africa, given our own demographic makeup. But, uh, you know, sometimes I just want to think about, you know, people talk about the competition, but what's the competition really about? Well, there's Taiwan. It's really about Taiwan and Hong Kong. But then after that, what are we really talking about? Grant, what question did I fail to ask? I think we've covered a lot of great ground today. Um, I, I just wanted to sort of continue down this this line of conversation. I think Carmen um, made a great point, which is what it was this competition about. And I think we hit on it earlier. It's about narratives, right? It's about our narrative about ourselves and our narrative about what we think the, the world should look like. And so my question for you guys is, if we put away American exceptionalism, if we put away a moralistic foreign policy, what does our soft power look like? And how do we build a joint narrative about what the world should be? So uh, let me let me try, try a shot at, at that. Uh, it, it does seem to me that it's not very different from what we have always said. We, we do believe in democracy and we believe people should choose their own government and their own leadership and their own policies and that countries should be free to do that uh, uh, within some bounds, uh, uh, but that uh, uh, we believe in sovereignty and rules. Uh, and you know, the, the, the advantage we have in competing on ideology uh, with uh, China is that at the end of the day, China is not selling a product that has an appeal to anybody except the Chinese. Uh, uh, and that is, uh, hey, we're the center of the universe, get used to it. Um, and, and so uh, they're, they're not selling choice for even the African or the Southeast Asian nations where they are uh, strong. They're just saying, stick to us, we've got uh, the juice. Um, and I don't think that's a, a message that wins in the long run with anybody. I actually don't think the Chinese, I, I kind of agree with Stuart, I don't think they're selling anything. I think they're buying. They're buying influence uh, with their economic power. And, and so far, they've been doing it exceptionally successfully. There is a limit, I think, to that and what it gets you because it's a very short-term thinking and they get locked in with current leadership that they, they, they tend to bribe as we're seeing in Africa. And if there's a change in leadership, they, they may lose all of that leverage um, that they've, they've, they've accumulated. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think Stuart is absolutely right. We're, we're not competing on ideological grounds. We're competing on hard power. And I actually think that to some extent, the Cold War 
was in many ways about that as well, um, the hard power between the Soviet Union and the United States. Yes, there were sort of an ideological component to, to, to that, but uh, let's face it, even the Soviet Union in the late stages of it did not really believe in communism anymore. It just believed in a dictatorial system, not unlike the, the, the Chinese now. Um, and, you know, the challenge that we face in this struggle is it's much more economical than it was military during the first Cold War. And uh, we're not necessarily in a great position, given that China is about to eclipse us in hard economic power by, by most uh, metrics that you look at. Uh, but uh, to go back to, to Carmen's point, I actually do think that Europe still matters. In terms of economic power, it will matter for a long time to come. Um, it's, it's a huge, um, obviously, economic space. Uh, as EU or even as individual countries. So we need to make sure that they are on our side of this battle, not the Chinese, at least for the foreseeable future. And uh, that's not a foregone conclusion. When you look at the recent US, um, EU-China deal, uh, that was put together really in the, in the uh, initial weeks right before the Biden administration took office. If you look at the overtures that Germans are making to the Chinese, um, all those things are very troubling. And in part because it's not an ideological struggle um, and it's all about hard economic power, um, the uh, who's going to be in our camp is not a foregone conclusion. So, uh, Dimitri, I think your points on the EU are, are good ones. Uh, and I, uh, I take your points. I would say in terms of Grant's question about soft power, and I'll, you know, maybe this is out of the box thinking, but I think as we sit today trying to think about how international relations will play out, I think one thing we have to keep in mind is that the second half of this century is going to be a period of declining world population. China's going to get hit hard, harder than any other country because of its own bizarre attempt at social engineering. But Everyone is going to, well, everyone is already hit hard. And most people, I think, now believe that the population is going to stabilize and then slowly start to decline. So it's going to be such a conceptually different world because I would argue everything we do, our economies, the way we govern, the way we seek meaning in life is based on growth. And growth, I think, in the second half of this century is going to end. So who then we'll have, you know, what what philosophical tradition will bring meaning to people's lives then? I, I don't know the answer. I suspect it won't be China, though. Let's hope it's not QAnon. Thank you, everyone, for being on the podcast. You guys are fantastic. This is like our great, uh, our greatest heavyweight panel. We, re we, uh, we really had a great time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.